0: Hello and welcome to the EOISS podcast, a conversation on foreign policy what-if scenarios. My name is Florence Gaub, I'm the host of the show, and with me today are Siniku Gassari, Senior Associate Analyst at DOSS, and Stanislav Sekreiro, Senior Analyst at the Welcome both of you. Thank you, Florence. Hi, Florence. So today we are traveling to the future of Russia, which is not a coincidence because you just published with us a Shaiu paper on Russian futures. But today we're going to focus on one particular aspect of Russia's future, which is increasing polarization of society. And the scenario, Cini, that you brought with you today is one where, in 2025, you have the rural Russia against the urban Russia, the wealthy Russia against the not so wealthy Russia, with clashes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is the scenario we're looking at today. Can you give us a little bit of background? Perhaps let's start with, uh, with the wealth aspect. Uh, Russia is highly unequal already. Can you tell us a little bit where we are and where you think we're going to go?
1: Right. So basically, in economic terms, Russia actually has one of the highest wealth inequality gaps in the world. So basically, even higher than in the US. The richest 1% of Russians, they own 58% of the nation's wealth. And the same pattern is also, if you look at the 10%, basically the richest 10%, they own 77% of nation's wealth. This is quite incredible. And what is very interesting is the fact that actually Russians don't really approve of this development that has been going on for decades already. So in any survey or opinion poll, I think that mostly Russians are concerned about poverty in Russia. And that's always. I think, almost always the number one concern that they have when it comes to future development.
0: And can I perhaps, sorry, jump in here, but I mean, perhaps it's a bit cultural, but Russia is, of course, also the descendant of the Soviet Union, which was highly egalitarian. So could we even say, I don't know, Stanislav, if maybe you want to come in here, that in a post-Soviet environment, inequality is even worse, even seen less as more unnatural?
2: Partially what helped President Putin in 2000 to win elections was a promise to be more serious in terms of limiting power of oligarchs, to curb uncontrolled enrichment of oligarchs, and probably some redistribution towards the people. So it was a sort of a promise of financial justice. And yes, it was a reaction to the 90s when the wealth of the people went dramatically down. But what we see in 2020, this situation didn't change at all. It got worse.
1: Exactly. And I think that it was just about sort of the state's control over the oligarchs, not really that we shouldn't have oligarchs, that the state should always have the upper hand. So perhaps that wasn't really that much of a problem when you had very high economic growth in Russia, because everyone was getting more. So in a way, it was easy to forget. But I think now that we have seen a very sluggish growth in Russia and even kind of lowering real incomes of households, it makes people very bitter and angry and distrustful towards each other. So I think that it will have a more of a societal impact now.
2: I think if I may add that the perception of inequality will sharpen Partially because for five, six years, even before the COVID, the disposable incomes were declining or stagnating. These uh, effects of pandemic, which probably will have a long-term impact, the uh, feeling of injustice and inequality will be felt much stronger by society. And probably these maybe not now, but in not so distant future, will increase the demand for more social, fair, and more responsible state, which takes responsibility for healthcare, who takes responsibility of many, many needs of people in Russia. Because on the one hand, what we see is the paternalistic discourse that state takes care of you, which often is in dissonance with reality on the ground.
0: Can we perhaps talk, I know, Sini, that you you want to talk about the four Russias, but before we go into that, can we perhaps talk about urbanizations? We have the have and have not, but we also have the city versus the countryside. That's also a fragmentation that you see widen. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's actually very interesting. I mean, there is a very strong urbanization in Russia. Of course, this is a global trend, so it happens everywhere. So there is nothing special about Russia. But I think that the fact that Russia is such a vast country and the fact that many of its regions are almost like depopulated, whereas like people are moving to the big urban centers while a big part of the uh, whole country is, is basically empty and decaying. That does have more dramatic effects than in a country that is rel- relatively small where the distances are small. So I think what we see is also that within, it's not just urbanization as such, but also amongst cities, you have winners and losers. So it is exactly these big urban spaces that are growing. So, of course, I mean, you have the very small cities that have less than 100,000 inhabitants, and these are actually 80% of Russian cities. So the maturity of Russian cities are actually not thriving,
0: but are declining. Can we even say it's urbanization or a Moscowification?
1: Well, I mean, partly it's, uh, well, it is true that Moscow is uh, in a category of its own. I mean, it's a universe of its own, basically. And it's really sucking the life out of other regions. That's definitely true. But on the other hand, you do have growth of uh, sort of urban uh, centers that what the Russians call millioniki, basically cities of more than one one million inhabitants. So they are also growing. So I can give you some statistics, for example, that in 2011, there were basically 12 millioniki But last year, we already had 15 of such cities. So basically, although it might be good for regions in one way, it is definitely not good for these kind of declining small cities that are really becoming empty.
0: And let me come back to Moscow, because you did say that in terms of population size, I think it has about 12 million people almost. Yes. But it has higher density than New York, Tokyo, London, Berlin or Shanghai. So it's In terms of space, it's not very big, but people-wise, it's very big.
1: Yes, there are really plenty of people. And the thing is that you can't really have a very nice quality of life even in Moscow if you don't have really big income. People are not really living well in Moscow. And this is exactly the reason, because there is such a rapid urbanization and people are moving to Moscow from all over Russia.
0: And people make much more money in Moscow than they do in other cities, right? Definitely.
1: And I think that digitalization is definitely also making the wheel spin faster and faster. So Moscow really attracts a lot of investment. I think that the lifestyle in Moscow is very different from other places in in Russia. So you can have really World-class services, just a click away, and everything is very digitalized. And it is very different than, you know, the reality in a, in a rural place in Russia.
0: So we have this combination. We have these different fragmentation city versus countryside and upper versus lower classes, which have led to the term, the four Russias. Can you tell me a bit about where this expression comes from and what it actually means?
1: Yes. So the idea, the kind of concept of four different Russias, I think it kind of became a very widely cited concept around 2012, and it was coined by a very well-known sociologist, Natalia Zubarevich. And what she meant by these different Russians was the fact that the realities of different groups of Russians are very different, and there is very little that holds those Russians together, so very little shared. So, for example, the first Russia was Russia of big post industrial city like Moscow, for example, and a typical member of that group was a very well educated Russian member of a middle class that lived a very cosmopolitan, nice life, had probably liberal values, probably had more in common with a European person living in in such conditions in Western Europe. then the second russia consisted of this kind of blue-collar industrial towns of Russia, exactly those towns that are now very much in decline. Then the third Russia was then rural Russia, very poorly educated, kind of like just concerned about where the livelihood is coming and kind of concentrating on the very sort of the essential essentials. And then finally, the fourth Russia was then the Russia of ethnic republics such as Chechnya that, you know, basically had their own reality and rules and were quite separate from the federal realities. Now, what was very interesting is that, you know, although this was very widely shared and cited and very popular conception, I think it was proven wrong by the events, the political events, such as the annexation of Crimea, because what followed from there was really this kind of feel-good factor that really united all of these four Russias. So everyone in Russia suddenly felt really good about their country, their leaders. And, you know, it was just beautiful to be a Russian person in this world after the annexation of Crimea. At least this is what the opinion polls demonstrated very vividly. So somehow there was this kind of like coming together after the annexation. That now we are seeing that this Crimean consensus, as it was called, might be diluting and somehow weakening and perhaps this is now the end of that. That people are, again, not just proud to be Russian and very patriotic, but they actually do have needs of their own and they are concerned about their future. So now it's kind of like we are seeing the re-emergence of these four Russians.
0: The four Russias, which overlap or seem to be fired by these fragmentations that we just discussed, do you see them clashing already? I mean, we are talking about a scenario here that's in the future, but do you have instances where it's already becoming, let's say, violent in Russia?
1: What we are seeing now that perhaps, you know, it was a simplification, at least to some extent, because what we are now seeing is also that the protests are not only protest of liberal Muscovites. But in fact, we do see this kind of belt of protest and discontent. And there is basically these two regional protest belts, one in the Arctic and one in the Far East. And they have increasingly become the sites of of protests. So perhaps uh, Zubarevich's thesis was a bit bit too Moscow-centered in the end.
0: Stanislav, these, uh, these protest belts, I mean, they seem to be more rural than urban. What is the socio-economic dimension between them?
2: I think these protests are not directed against other segments of society. They are directed against local or central authorities. And the specific of these protests is that so far citizens were not demanding power to go. In majority cases what they demand for power to solve their problems. They want to be heard. And what are these problems? Problems with collection of garbage. Their problems are with defending a green space in the middle of a city. Their problems about the disqualification of candidates for local elections. Their problems is the what they perceive as unjust arrest of a governor whom they perceive as an efficient manager. Topics of protests over the last years significantly expanded, What they have not did so far. They didn't translate it into nationwide protests. They are very localized.
1: Yeah, they are localized, but they are directed against Moscow and Putin. So I think that there is this kind of element that, you know, Moscow is not listening to the regions.
2: Implicitly, yes, they go against authorities, but less so in terms of explicitly demanding their resignation. The recent focus groups as well revealed that citizens would like authorities to listen to them, to hear their voice, and to resolve problems which trigger the protests. Although in the case of Khabarovsk, where we have seen for already three months, continuous protest, they voiced some slogans which were directed against current president. But still, it's not the major trend. It's not the major slogan yet.
0: Let's look at the future, because the scenario that we're discussing here, so we have the ongoing trends, so we assume that urbanization will continue and uh, inequality, uh, wealth distribution will continue as well. Uh That brings me to the future, which includes, of course, other trends that are perhaps going to amplify this, like digitalization. And it's no secret that I'm a big fan of science fiction, and I'm currently watching on Netflix this Russian series called Better Than Us. And it adds to this already difficult equation, digitalization, and it creates this anti-robot movement in Moscow. They attack and destroy robots because they take their jobs. So when you look at 2025, where do you see this trajectory going? I mean, we already have fragmentation and we'll we'll probably have more, Or, or, or do you disagree with me? Do you think digitalization will close these gaps?
1: No, quite the contrary. I would say that digitalization really amplifies the polarization effect because basically the digital economy is very much in Moscow and it is really amplifying the effect. And I haven't seen any episodes of this better than us, but I really must see now. But of course, this is something that I guess governments all over the world are struggling, you know, the socioeconomic impact of automation and, you know, how the losers of digitalization will then, how do we manage that disruption? I mean, it's immense, obviously.
2: I think that digitalization will contribute to economic polarization, yeah? It will accentuate this gap between uh, losers and winners. But at the same time, it creates some possibilities to improve the lives of those who are perceived as the losers. For instance, digitalization can help extend high-quality services to the locations which are poorly connected with urban centers. I've seen people talking uh, in Russia about deliveries to locations with difficult accessibility by drones, goods, and services. We don't know which way we will go and whether the companies will be interested to capture these customers. But then if you look at the societal level, digitalization obviously will be a challenge for the current political regime in Russia because it will be diluting the power to control flows of information. It also will be diluting the power of traditional opinion makers who are mainly present on state TV channels. The new opinion makers, uncontrolled by Kremlin, will emerge using their growing capacity to reach out audience via social media like YouTube channels, Facebook, and Twitter. And this is interesting how the current political regime will react to this driver of change. But at the same time, it creates as well for them plenty of opportunities in the way how they can control society without relying on much more violence.
0: But that brings me actually to the question, do you think that the regime has an awareness or will do Anything to alleviate the negative effects of urbanization and to reduce inequality? Or is it all lip service and, or there is even no awareness that this is a problem in the making?
2: I think there is a awareness. If one reads the speech of President Putin addressed to the Federal Assembly in 2020, there was a recognition that government has to pivot to the domestic problems has to address many of social issues voiced by people individually or collectively. And then it's even interesting that President Putin mentioned the word "change." He said that we are aware, or we understand, that we need to make some changes. But the question is whether the government and this current regime is capable. To think in terms of change, if their political calculations tell them that change favors them or undermines their power, and third element, whether if they decide that they need to pivot back and address domestic problems away from foreign policy adventures, whether they have funds to improve lives of people, to improve the quality of healthcare to improve quality of education, to improve situation with uh, local environment, air, water, uh, garbage collection, and many, many uh, other problems. So you can see that there are a lot of ifs. Yeah.
1: Yes, and I, I have to say that I'm pretty pessimistic because, I mean, I think that there is certain awareness. But on the other hand, the regime is really instinctively kind of hostile towards pluralism. And it will always prefer security and status quo over improvement or even technocratic change. So uh, somehow I think that it might do an attempt, but if it proves to be difficult, as it probably does, then it will kind of revert back to its old methods of brutal
0: control. So not such a good outlook for Russia when it comes to political and social fragmentation. Very interesting. This was just the first episode to talk about Russian futures. Thank you, Sini and Stanislav, for joining me today. To the listener, if you're interested in more, go to our website and download the paper that Sini and Stanislav just produced, Russian Futures 2030, from iss.europa.eu. And do tune in again for another What If? episode.